Hey everyone. Um, so if you're lucky and you're in here early and you got the sneak preview, you've got a sound of things. But um, my name's Jock Sarong and uh, welcome to Blarney Books. This is the greatest bookshop in the free world um, and one of the greatest art galleries. There's a couple in Paris. Um, we need to um, pay our respects to elders past and present of the Pequawarung people of this country and um, to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, and on that note, uh, I'm so thoroughly delighted to introduce you all, uh, not that any introduction is needed, to our guest today, Mick Thomas. Um, Mick has been gracing Australian stages for 32 years now, in fact well beyond that, but perhaps in the public consciousness in a big way for 32 years or more. Um, he's written songs that are part of Australian life, that reflect Australian life. There's been 11 Weddings, Parties, Anything albums along the way. Um, my count was 12 solo projects and albums. Um, he's produced theatre, he's produced other artists' albums, he's, uh, he's done soundtracks, he's done a songbook called These Are The Days back in 2017. Um, if you were lucky enough last night to come along to the Vandemonian Lags, that is an extremely special project and I'll mention that again at the end of this talk but um, it's one that's just not to be missed. There's another opportunity to see it tomorrow and it is utterly, utterly fabulous. Um, Mick is also a publican and a dad um, and he probably has the very best case of anyone going around for claiming the title of Australia's Musical Poet Laureate. Now, I thought um, before I bang on too much, a couple of things. One is that we're going to have an agreement here that um, if the talking is driving you nuts, just stick a hand up and Mick will play a song like the human <laughs> jukebox. <laughs> and in that way, we'll work our way through this hour. Um, and on that note, I'm sticking my hand up. Mick, would you kick us off? Okay. This one for the new album. This is called Bright Sunshine. Scarves all dress the same On a school excursion Or maybe The Lions Club or Rotary Through the halls of shame They walk the sordid floors Through the halls of pain I walked till I could take no more With teary eyes I sought the great outdoors But out in the bright sunshine They waited there in line Out in the bright, bright, bright sunshine Playing with their mobile phones Sending messages to friends back home They hardly seem to register 
all the misery had gone on there And I wondered then While I was looking at them kids Thinking way back when Did it ever shine like this? In 1944 I don't believe it did out in the bright sunshine everything seemed fine out in the bright 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 sunshine words of freedom seldom spoken was it a tribute or a token but is that reason there enough when everything has come undone to miss one single second of to miss one single second of the bright sunshine of the bright sunshine of the bright 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 sunshine sunshine it dawned on me it's love not work that sets you free it's love not work that sets you free out in the bright sunshine it's love not work that sets you free out in the bright sunshine out in the bright sunshine out in the bright 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 sunshine um, you might have picked up from Mick's lyrics there that um, this is a story about uh, it's a parable about children perhaps not paying the kind of respect we might hope they would as adults. But um, it ends with a really generous sentiment. Mick, can you take us through the story of how that song came about? Sure, I might. Uh, we're talking about this. Uh, There's a guy called Angelo Madrid. He's just sort of took to um, illustrating some of my songs and putting them on the weddings party site. And um, he's sort of done a whole lot for the new album, which I was sort of talking about making into a graphic novel. So. This sort of explains what Bright Sunshine's about if people want to have, have a little look. But it, it really is about myself and initially uh, Michael Barclay, um, who's playing in the lags with us this weekend for the weddings, uh, visiting the concentration camp at Dachau. And uh, it's a pretty harrowing thing to see. And coming out and there's just these kids sitting in the sunshine. It's just a sort of a school trip for them, you know. And and we kind of had a, like a mild argument because Michael's going, look at those kids, they don't seem to give a shit. And I go, well, they're kids, you know, and they're not going to give a shit. You know? and, 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 and you sort of see that, and I just, I just thought about it for a while and I thought, you know what, this, the sun's shining, they're just kids being kids and it's kind of what the war was fought for, you know, so that people could just be what they want to be, you know. Like I just think that 
that if, if if that right's basically denied people and people are telling you how to behave at every step in the way, that's a kind of, kind of almost, almost the first step towards, uh, you know, fascism in, in, to put sort of a, to stretch a, a long bow, really. But the thing that got us about Dachau, Dachau really got me, was that I'd always compartmentalised the the evils of the you know the Third Reich as being uh, levelled at Jewish people, and then later in life I learned that they. Uh, killed a lot of gypsies and I thought oh well that's it's just a racially based thing but what you realize at Dachau is that it was just kind of anyone who didn't toe the line socially was going to get it so um you know there were and the thing that really affected me because it was kind of like my tribe was the artists you know that and there were artists and musicians that were locked up in Dachau because they were seen as people who couldn't make a, a legitimate living you know in, in the way the Third Reich sort of thought that people should make a living should work really hard for the you know for the cause you know and and that there are all these people that just couldn't do that and I thought well they're my friends really the, the, the you know the people who were the inability to create <laughs> normal work um you know they're the people that I've spent my life hanging out with and just to think that they, those people would be perse persecuted was it was a dreadful thing to sort of to consider but so when I saw saw these kids outside, I thought, well, you know, they're within their rights, you know, and the sun was shining, and you know, um, that's kind of what I was trying to trying to get at. And I think it sort of became kind of the focal point or the foundation point of the whole album for me. And it kind of it is, it is a bit about acceptance, accepting sort of you know, aberrant behaviour, or accepting that things mightn't go your way. And, and it, you're right; it opens things on a really bright, optimistic note, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, I. I it's it sort of does, and it's not it's not like saying it's not as simple as saying, uh, you know, you're getting old and you're getting passive in your response to things, and it's not as simple as saying like that stupid, you know, it's like a fridge magnet, you know, of go uh, <laughs> grant me the you know ability to fight for the things I can change and accept the things that I can't change and whinge about the rest and whinge about the rest, but yeah, but it's it, it kind of it's kind of that it's kind of it is a, it it's all those things and it's not none of those things, you know. Yeah. So, but, um, can we talk a little bit about the album? It's called yep. Cold Water DFU, and the obvious thing to tackle here is the acronym. Yeah, um, Cold Water is the, is the place, uh, Cold Water, Mississippi, where the studio, the main studio we worked in, was. And the reason we went to that studio was because it was set up by a guy called Jim Dickinson, who did the Third Weddings album, and he was incredibly influential uh, for the weddings and for myself. Um, and you know, it leads to the question about why we never got back there and something that me and Squeezebox Wally talked about um, at length when we were over there, why it's taken us, you know, almost 30 years to get back there. But uh, in the interim, Jim had died. And uh, so this is his studio that was sort of basically being run by his his, uh, his widow, Mary, uh, Mary Lindsay. Um, and in my dealings with her, she just started... Uh, and I'm, you're sort of dealing with a woman in her late 80s here and she just started sort of signing off these um, emails with the words, don't fuck up. Which <laughs> <laughs> is pretty funny coming from a, you know, quite a conservative 80-year-old uh, woman. And, and, and we asked about don't fuck up. Well, well, what, what do you keep saying that? And she said, oh, well, the first session that happened in the studio after Jim died is this woman called Reba Russell who also sang on the album quite a bit. And uh, Reba said that she had a dream that Jim spoke to her, and this is yeah. Everyone, everyone was really. We didn't realise, but there's there's not that much been done in the studio since Jim 
passed on 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but she was, I think, the first session to go back in there. And uh, she said she had this dream that Jim was speaking to her. And they said, well, what did, what did, what did he say to you? And she said, he said, don't fuck up. <laughs> and, and it was it's kind of mantra. And, he used to, and he used to, apparently he used to say it to, to unnerve people, to make them do sort of weird things in the studio. So someone would be all ready to do this take and, and you go oh don't fuck up you know and people go ah! and uh, so it just sort of became a little thing for us during the session and and the whole thing of like his two sons were supposed to um produce it now they're kind of pretty much a no show but they did all this stuff uh, remotely like they you know made sure we were at this studio and that studio and this studio with got all our gear sorted and you know and like luther said uh, and we'll do the horns at willie mitchell and while he are we having horns on this album, Mick? He said, well, we've never had horns on our album in the, in the whole 30 years. And I said, yeah, I said, maybe we should have horns, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and so we ended up having, you know, horns on it's six horns tracks. horns on Bright Sunshine. Yeah, yeah, six, six of the tracks. Have got, and we've got these Memphis dudes and they were fantastic. And it was a real great experience to, to work with people like that. So it could be argued quite strongly that they exerted quite an influence without actually turning up. Um, <laughs> and they just kept saying that, that Jim had said to them that uh, production in absentia is the highest form of the art. <laughs> and, and I said, I reckon they just got a hold of it there. But, you know, uh, uh, at the same time, uh, it just became like yeah, in absentia. So I think in a sense, in terms of the actual influence on the record, Jim probably had more influence from the grave yeah. than, than anyone, you know. And... Um, you might want to turn That's it Jim. Off. That's Jim. Yeah. <laughs> Even to, like this really kind of weird thing happened on the. It was about three days from the end of the sessions, and uh, myself and Wally and Aileen, who were still there at the time, um, we were at the studio and we asked about um, Jim's ashes. You know, we said, well, where, where, well, where's his grave? And they said, oh, no, they said, oh, they scattered his ashes. They said, oh, you know, um, where it's like a, it's a country property, so it's quite a long um, driveway down to the, where the studio is. It's a barn, and they said, "Oh, yeah, that little lake." As you come in, they said, "This where they scattered his ashes." You know, I said, "Oh, yeah." So we left that day as we drove out, and it's like a T intersection where that hits the road, and the lake's right there. We go, "Oh, that's the thing." And there was this sort of storm coming in, and there's this this thunder clap went off, this lightning strike, and it struck like literally, you know, from from here to that pole. And the, and the trees all sort of moved and, and smoked, and it was the loudest thing you ever heard. And I, and I squealed like a bloody pig and Jim. and hit the roof of the car, <laughs> and just and I was just sort of wiped the whole way back. I just it was the most. So that was kind of a a weird thing. If I was a superstitious person, I would have. Uh, <laughs> I'd say Jim was speaking to us that day. Now you had there was a beautiful quote in the notes to the album from Paul Thoreau about the danger of going back to a place like Memphis after yeah. a very very long time. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a great quote. It's in his. Um, uh, the, the, I think it's his. It's a book where he reimagined the Great Railway Bazaar, and he did yep. the same same journey thirty three years later. And so he was saying that um, the initial journey in the Great Railway Bazaar, which is you know one of the great travel books, I, I would rate it. Mm. As w- he was thirty three years old, and he, he did this same trip when he was sixty six, and and he was saying there is a real danger, and he was looking at all these great authors that never. He said, you know, like that Charles Darwin never went to sea again once he'd done his, you know, the big, the beagle, the beagle. and and I think he was saying that um, Graham Greene never went back to the Congo, and all these um, 
all these great writers that you know never did that, but but then he then he goes on to list a lot who did do that, you know, and um, so yeah, it, it is kind of fraught, you know, that whether you try, you know, I'm trying at the age of you know 58 to create what this you know guy at 29 did, and we certainly Memphis meant a different thing to us this time around, you know, like we actually kind of went to museums this time around, you know, whereas like <laughs> the first time ago. Yeah, 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 and it was sort of funny because, and I think it was what was kind of good about the weddings, you know, like we we kind of, Pete Lawler was certainly a lot more up on, you know, the, the cultural uh, landmarks that we should be taking notice of, but mm. I'd say pretty much until we got off the plane. Me and Wally probably didn't really know what Beale Street was or, or anything like that. We just kind of, nuts in America, I don't know. You know, we just had this. We wanted to go there because we wanted to go anywhere. It could have, it could have just as easily been Czechoslovakia or, you yeah. know, or Beijing. You know, like it, it did. It, it was just somewhere weird and wonderful. And this guy wanted to work with us. And um, you know, as far as Jim Dickinson went, we knew he'd done Sister Lovers. Um, we knew he'd done pleased to meet me for the replacements and we knew he'd played on wild horses for the stones and that was really all we cared about when we went to memphis when we were 29 and beyond that you know all we did all we did on that trip was we recorded and went down beale street and drank our boxes off and and went to, we went to a pork festival pork um <laughs> pork ribs you know that was it that was the that was the whole cultural thing was well, this time around we kind of Got to a few museums and, you know, I even went to Graceland, heaven forbid. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't advise it. Um, but, yeah, so we, we, we were a lot more kind of uh, savvy about what the place means and, you know, trying to understand it and get it. But, you know, I don't think the good rock bands ever, you know, thought about things too much, you know. I mean, yeah. it, it's, it is the province of, you know, people of that age. So I think... By trying, by getting a different thing out of it, you know, it, it sort of legitimised it. Whereas I think if we we'd just gone back there to, to try and be the same roaring boys that we were when we were mm. in our late twenties, it might have been a mistake. But um, it, it was really good to go back and to to sort of evaluate a few things, you know. Yeah. Um, can I ask you about the passage of time? That in those days where you've got a major record label behind you and you've got resources and there's money to spend and there's extravagance going on. I imagine there's a there's a contrast to now where you've got to be more inventive about particularly instrumental arrangements, but the way that you use the money and and the creative choices that you make. And and this album, you know, I hear things like there's brass, there's a bit of mandolin in there, yeah. there there's some beautiful backing vocals. How do those choices change as the years go on? Um, well, you're not certainly not in a position to uh, to sit around considering them you know like yep. you have to really make the choices and i think um your indecision is the thing that will cost you money in the studio if you, if you if you just don't know what you want it's one thing to not be able to get what you want but if you don't know what you're trying for well you can spend all day on a guitar part if you don't know what you want and you, you could spend all day on it and at the end of the day it's still not right whereas if you know what you want yep. well you either get it or you don't but um so and we th this album we spent eight days, we spent four days recording at the Zebra Ranch, which is a studio in Coldwater, which is just like a barn, right? It's not, not much to it. Then we spent two days at uh, uh, Royal Studios, which is a really famous studio, and th that's where we did the horns and backing vocals and stuff. Then we spent uh, two days doing some more overdubs at Sam Phillips, which is a beautiful old studio. 
um, and did sort of some pre-mixing there. Then there was four days missing. So it was like 12 days recording all up. Now, I know the weddings, I'm big don't argue, I think it was, I think it was 20, 29 days of recording, you know, uh, in, in a really expensive studio. So that, you know, the space we had to stuff up, like, was, was, was quite, um, was considerable, you know. And I know, I know there were days spent on tracks that sort of had to be, you know, pulled apart. And this, is, and this was even with Jim Dickinson, who was known as this sort of a, you know, punk rock producer sort of thing, a guy for, you know, bashing them out and getting them out quick. Yeah. Um, so that's how much the business has changed over the years too, you know. Like it's, um, you just don't, the big budgets aren't there anymore for people like us anyway. But they're not even there for, people are making records a lot cheaper these days. And we were talking to the engineer, Kevin Houston, um, who again was probably one of the really significant people to exert an influence on the record in that he'd been Jim's engineer for the past for the last 15 years of Jim's life and uh, we said oh what's up next and he said I've got this and I've got this and that and this and that he said oh he said no project's as big as this so and we said and so and, and this is a guy who's yeah you know, he's a professional recording engineer in Memphis Tennessee yeah you know, and he so he considered 12 days to be a big project so people just aren't getting the big budgets yeah. anymore, yeah. and it's probably by and large a good thing, you know, because it's it's those albums that took, you know, a hundred days to make that are generally crap anyway, you know. Like really Spaghetti incident. Yeah, <laughs> just those you know behemoth albums of the of the eighties, you know, yeah. it's, that had to change, and I'm glad it did, you know. So. Hey, um, your reference to indecision reminded me. I wrote this down something that you said a while ago. I think the whole experience of making the first few Weddings records made me see that indecision is the enemy in so many ways when trying to create art under any sort of constraint. So I suppose that's you're talking about studio time, but is that also the, the choices that you make in songwriting? Yeah, yeah, it was just second-guessing and, you know, leaving things too open. And it's like, you know, you can... I mean, there is great evidence to show that songs can be done in a variety of ways and, it's, and that's, that's no surprise to anyone, you know, that... You can play a song fast, you can play it slow, it, 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 it can still be the same song. But to, to sort of know what you want to do or what you want to get out of a song and to be, to be sure of it is, you know, it's, it's really important. And it's why quite often you might shelve a song, you know, it might have a, a genesis of, you know, like a, I mean, easy easily can have a genesis of 10 or 15 years because mm. it gets shelved. But to sit there and stress over it, you know, and to not know what you want, well, that's just not... I mean, that's why you co-write, you know. Sometimes yeah. you get stuck, you know, and that that's ten, tends to be why I co-write, you know. Like, I'll, I'll just write a song to a certain point and go, ah, yeah, well, I could finish it, but I'll just get someone else to have a look at that. Mm. And, um, so that's... Where, where do they it, live while they're shelved? Um, good question. They... The, they used to just live in a Spyrex notebook, um, but more and more they tend to live on mobile phones and stuff like yeah, that. Okay. You know? um, which is, I can still remember the first time uh, I saw someone doing that was Van Walker. Mm. And he just and he lost he lost his phone and he had this major stress. I said, "What?" And this is way before phones had sort of taken over our lives and basically ruined us culturally and socially. Um, <laughs> Van just, Van had a phone, which I thought was funny in itself, and. Uh, and he said, I lost my phone. He said, oh. I said, what? And he said, oh, I've got all my songs on it. I said, you got your songs on your phone? <laughs> he said, yeah, that's what I do, you know. And, uh, and I, I, th I thought it was hilarious, you know, <laughs> that he would just have a, like a voice recorder on his phone and just sing into it, you know. And 
since then, I, I mean, I've met plenty of people who do it and I do it, you know. And the, per- the first person I ever saw use a computer in songwriting was uh, Michelle Show. Yeah, the songwriting workshop, and she was sitting there. I said, "What are you doing?" She goes, "I'm writing a song." I said, "What? You know, is you is that, is that how you write?" Yeah, so I write on a computer, and she says, "Great, I can take this line and put it there." I went, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I still I kind of like to see what I've crossed out. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've seen that Spyrex notebook of yours once. Yeah, it's quite amazing. I've got a pile of them. It's great. You know. Yeah. I've, that's the closest I've got to a diary, you know. Yeah. Um, this is probably a good time for someone to stick their hand up and ask for a song. <laughs> yeah. um, Murder Town, maybe? Yeah, sure. sure. This is from the album, this is... Uh, uh, could be any number of towns. I'll leave it at that. In Murder Town In Murder Town not a soul looks up, not a soul looks down In murder town, in murder town Well this is now and that was then Who knows what lurks in the hearts of men In murder town And they say We got a pretty nice bakery On TripAdvisor the stars they numbered three and they say we got so much to do and see and if you break your journey here you can park for free in murder town in murder town not a soul looks up not a soul looks down in murder town in murder town this is now and that was then Who knows what lurks in the hearts of men In murder town And they say The team might win a few this year It's been a while Since we've been up there And they say There's a curse on us I fear Maybe it's best to not believe Everything you hear in Murder Town In Murder Town Not a soul looks up, not a soul looks down In Murder Town In Murder Town Well this is now and that was then Who knows what lurks in the hearts of men In Murder Town Putting up them stoby poles They're gonna last the ages As long as the aspersions cast In scurrilous news pages Well my dad said the die was cast The shit had stuck and it stuck fast The cruelest words would be the last In murder town In murder town Long ago, and not so far away it seems A nightmare was extracted from a small town's sleepy dreams And in spite of any noble civic schemes 
memories stretch longer than the highway south it seems in murder town in murder town not a soul looks up not a soul looks down in murder town in murder town this is now and that was then Who knows what lurks in the hearts of men Who knows In murder town In murder town A sleepy murder town In murder town It's not a creepy murder town In murder town It's my murder town If you have a look at those pages of Angelo's graphics that are going around, there's, you, you'll see some beautiful pictures of the story of Stobie poles in there, which I personally find really fascinating. <laughs> but um, there are Stobie poles in the lyrics there, and you also referred to a footy team. Um, and you just told me a deeply unsettling thing about the Pine Garner Footy Club. Yeah, yeah. Could um, you perhaps join some of those or, Well, um, people generally think the song is about South Australia because they seem to corner the market in murders in, in <laughs> and Stobie Poles provincial murders and it does mention Stobie Poles which is if you want to see if someone's truly from South Australia just mention Stobie Poles and they sort of go all doe-eyed and start you know getting really sort of uh, Stobie Poles are those telephone poles that are made from two bits of metal with sort of concrete in the middle but South Australians just kind of I don't know they love them you know they got, no, uh, they got no timber yeah they got no timber exactly um but uh, the the verse that refers to uh, the team winning and the team having a curse on them uh, was kind of a reference to a Tasmanian football team my brother used to play against in a particular little town where there was a um, for whatever reason someone got killed in the town someone got murdered and uh, they knew the police were on their way out from Launceston so they had a big bonfire and they burnt the burnt the ashes. And uh, the cops got there and the, the town was just sort of totally united and they weren't going to find out who did it. And, and uh, so the cops went back and it was never never brought to trial. And uh, But the the funny thing about it, or, or amusing thing about it, is uh, that the football team were colloquially known as the Killam and Burnhams <laughs> uh, from then on. And they never won a premiership. So. Um, Mick, your voice sounds as beautiful as it ever has. What happens with a singer's voice as the years go on? What do you notice about your own voice over time? Uh, I, look, I have no kind of reason to expect that I still would even have a voice, you know, after the way I've treated the poor thing over the years. <laughs> but uh, um, I don't know. I, I just... I think you don't use it, you you lose it, really. You know, yeah. I think I think just keeping on singing it, sing, keeping on using it, is sort of what's what's sort of kept it strong. It's a it's a muscle, really. I think. And is it going to places that that are new to you or unexpected? Um, or is it same old, same old? Oh no, no, it's. Um, I think you're more comfortable in it. You know, you, you sort of know what it's what it can and can't do. You know, I think yeah. that that's probably a really. Um, important thing as you get older, just to just to know <coughs> know where it's going to go. And to, you know, there certainly was a time when I was sort of you know pushing it and trying to see you know where I could where I could go with with it. And uh, I um and back in in those and look, I reckon one of the biggest factors in me hanging on to some sort of voice is um, living in a country where 
smoking became prohibited in indoors in pubs because I just remember people standing in front of me going, <laughs> and and I just used to lose my voice constantly, you know, like um, in the, in those days. And I still know if we go to Europe and you're in pubs where they're smoking a lot because they're still. They're still smoking them over there, I tell you. Um, you know, I just do, do lose my voice, and that's that. That was a, a really big, a big part of a, sort of hanging on to it a bit. So. And what's the emergency first aid when that happens? Um, I had the worst case of just, uh, just I don't know what you. I don't even didn't even have it diagnosed. We were in Germany uh, a couple of years ago, me and Wong, and I just totally lost. It. Just woke up one morning and I just don't know what it was, and it was more viral than anything I reckon because it was like, gig was fine. Uh, we didn't go out doing stupid. We sort of, you know, went back to where we were staying. It was fine. Woke up in the morning, just no voice. And I got taken to a chemist shop and, and she uh, didn't speak English when I you know, explained to her. And she said, uh, Aspro clear. She said, yeah, she gave me this aspirin. She said, just gargle with it. She said, you don't even have to drink it. Um, just it's anti-inflammatory. And sage tea. And it kind of worked so quickly. It was was yeah. un- unbelievable. Uh, and I know back when I was talking about those periods when, yeah, probably around the time of the set, probably second or third album, and I was really trying to push my voice into other areas and, and I was losing my voice a fair bit and I was a bit worried about it and I um, got recommended through when we were signed to Warner's <laughs> um, to, to go to a, a throat doctor, I don't know what you call him, uh, not a therapist, but yeah, anyway. I had to go and see this, you know, throat specialist, you know, who dealt with singers, and and he sort of looked at his throat, and he, and he was, it was really kind of quite confronting. He sort of was, he was prodding around there with this thing that looked like a big icy pole stick, and he's going, right, sing this note, and he's going, and go, go higher, and and he went, yeah, and, and, he, and he said, all right, can I ask you a few questions? I said, yeah, and he said, he said. He said, uh, do you like your voice? And I went, jeez, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> not, not really. And he said, all right. He said, can I ask you, does anyone like your voice? <laughs> and I said, well, some people seem to like it. He goes, he goes, he goes oh, you're fine. Then. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, Did you get the sense he was offering to change it for you? Uh, I get the sense that he didn't think I had a future as a singer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I like to think of a great thing with Tom Waits and they said, do you do anything to protect your voice? And he said, what, from vandals? <laughs> um, okay, big conceptual shift. Uh, on The Big Don't Argue, there was a song called A Tale They Won't Believe, um, which you drew from Robert Hughes yep. from The Fatal Shore. <laughs> then there was Difficult Loves, which um, to me is a Calvino title, mm. and it had Step In, Step Out on it, I think, which is a Calvino story. Um, we talked about Thoreau before. How is all this reading finding its way into your songwriting? I just look, it just always has, and and it, I know that um, at times when I'm not being as productive as I think I should be, the best thing for me to do is just to go and read a book, you know, and mm. just and uh, it sort of puts the brain in the right sort of thing, and it, and it puts it somewhere that a computer doesn't, because computer is just kind of like. You know, you sit down to do one thing and then you do another thing and then you do another thing and then something comes in and you get a message from someone and then all of a sudden you're on Facebook, you know, and you're just, <laughs> just scrolling madly and trying to see how many hits you got on something or other and, and you know, cursing someone and, you know. 
it's so distracting and, and it's so it, it's so dis um, it sort of spreads your thought, you know. Yeah. Whereas uh, I reckon uh, a book focuses your your thought, and and I and I don't think it's just in a technical way. I think it's something to do with the light of a computer screen and and just the, the, way, the amount of times you blink and just where I think with, with a book it sort of calms you and it, mm. and it really does order your thoughts. So I think for me, I, I just know that you know the the more you know I was kind of got this sort of uh, thing in my head that. Um, I remember my father taking me fishing in in Yamba in New South Wales where they used to go um, every year. And uh, on the seawall at Yamba, it used to have this really great sign painted and it was and it said that there's this old Islamic proverb and that, that uh, Allah said that the the hours of a man's life that he spent fishing would be awarded back to him at the end of his life. And I think the hours of a man's life that he spends on Facebook will be deducted <laughs> double for being such a fucking idiot. <laughs> I'm into that. Um, but you must, have, you must have read dozens and dozens of books over the years that really moved you or that stuck in your head. But why yeah. do only some of them turn up in your songs and how do you make that decision? Um, it's a really good question and there's actually just no answer to it. It's just, you know, why some have residents and some have don't. And, you know, I've built like a stack of stuff around this guy, Peter Penny, who was an Australian travel author and he's kind of pretty rough uh, rough and ready as a writer and I, I, I think there's probably more parallels between him and myself as an artist in some ways than a lot of other authors because he just kind of goes there and there and there and it's not too constructed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was just... A pure chance thing of finding his book in an op shop in Warrnambool. It was yeah. on the last weddings tour, and I remember um, it was myself and the uh, Jen Anderson and the girls from the Waifs, and we're and the, and we're just going to interminable op shops, and you know inevitably, you know, I just end up at the back looking at the books, and all the girls are you know trying on some new threads, and uh, I found this book you know, by Peter Penny, and it just became a really vivid thing to me. But there's something vivid about his books, and I think that's the only word I could use. You know, some writers just seem to have this a vivid sort of thing or a, or a turn of phrase. And I you know, know those sort of books I'm quite often just folding a page over to come back and sort of just grab that line or that, that idea, you know. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's no rhyme or reason to it. And I think it's why I, why I love the art form of songwriting because it is hit and miss and uh, and bad writers can write really good songs and, you know, it's... Like it's hit and miss. I mean, good writers write a lot of good songs, but good writers tend to write the odd bad song too. You know, it's yep. a, it tends to be a pretty um, a pretty inexact art form, and uh, it's all the better for it. You know. Um, can we maybe have a good song? Try. Off the new record, do you think? Yes, please. All right, I'll. Uh, Aqua Profunda. Song about the uh, the Fitzroy swimming pool. Um, the, loosely speaking, this is just the thoughts of a an old fella swimming laps. I've been swimming in the warm November rain. Aqua Profunda. Aqua profunda means deep water. Spring was a promise barely fulfilled. A season just in name. Aqua profunda. Aqua profunda. 
Stolen days and wasted nights Were the memories through which I swam And every breath, every stroke From what I was to who I am Is a memory that will not drown No matter how long I hold them under Aqua profunda I went swimming in the warm November rain Aqua profunda Aqua profunda And the ghosts of Fitzroy swam with me I loved them once again Aqua profunda Aqua profunda I felt closer to my father than down Rippleside at 6 a.m. A memory from way back when. Morning frost on our pink skinny loft as he went diving in. I shivered on the pier. Oh, little wonder. Aqua profunda. Twenty laps in slow succession. A stuttering kilometer Such is my regime as is my wants It's like trying to brew beer in a bag of hessian Or flogging a horse that's beaten It's hardly the English Channel Or the Hellespont Aqua Profunda Swimming in the warm November rain, Aqua Profunda, Aqua Profunda. And outside the freeway ground to nothing, their loss was my gain, Aqua Profunda, Aqua Profunda. And have you ever seen a sky so gray? Have you ever seen a pool so blue? Have you ever seen a clock so slow? To count the hours away from you And a place to which I will return No matter how far or wide I wander Aqua profunda Aqua profunda um, talking to mates last night about talking to you today, the word that kept coming up was that you're a storyteller. And, and I sort of thought about that overnight and I thought, yes, that's the case, but to, somehow that's not the defining thing about your songwriting. And I wondered if one of the really defining characteristics is the way you write about places. So you, you've talked about um, the Fitzroy Pool there and um, places that lots of people know from Melbourne like Stalactites or the Albion Hotel, yeah. um, the Maltby Bypass. Um, is that a really important part of the songwriting process for you? Because I think people really latch onto it. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I kind of love that expression to say, oh, you know, it gets you where you live, you know. Yeah. Like it's sort of, uh, and it's not like you're just trying to get a checklist of places. Uh, it might seem like that, you know, that, that we kind of... No, it's more with, a wandering thing. Isn't I want, it? Yeah. Um, 
We used to, I, 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 I mean, I still constantly do this um, in in a band. If if someone's from that town, you know, you always go, oh, and then you know, the local person's returned, and you know. You take a band of about five or six people, and generally, they've, you know, some of them have lived in a few different places. So you can generally find someone who's a who's a returning local, you know, and, and mm. people sort of get this thing out of it, you know. But but it's it's not to say that that it's that it's everything, you know. It's, it's, it's sometimes just the sound of places. Like we're recording the album that we've just done in uh, in Memphis, and it was really interesting because uh, none of the people that worked on the album have been to Australia, you know, and they were kind of uh, Oh, Ballarat. Ballarat. And I know that look romantic from a distance. Well, we've got this song. <laughs> there's song an album called, uh, it's called Died in Ballarat. And it's about the, when the Moscow Circus went bust and it went belly up in Ballarat and they all got stranded there. And uh, in the middle of it, it's. Um, and the wind, like an echo of distant applause, marooned on the Wendery shore. And I go, Wendery. And I, it's a beautiful word to sing, Wendery. It just sings really beautifully. And they're going, oh, Wendery. <laughs> I go, it's the fucking ugliest lake in the world, you know. Like, we would have to take the cake. There's probably one in Soviet Russia that's fucking, that's, that probably has a, a uranium count that's very high and it's worse, but it's not a great one, right? Uh, but they're going, and, and the other, other funny thing is, is a song that um, didn't make the cut on the album, but it's called The Sparrows of Tullamarine. And, and, uh, and, the, and the, the younger tape op engineer at uh, Sam Phillips is going, Tullamarine. <laughs> and, but see, the thing is, the first time we, you know, and I, I didn't start travelling till pretty late. You know, like um, so. The first time I left Australia was I was, tw- I was 28 years old, and the wedding's got a gig at, at this festival in Houston, and uh, we had a day off. And everyone said, "What do you want to do?" And we said, "We want to go to Galveston." And they said, "Why?" They said, it's, it's horrible. They said it's horrible. It's a pretty bad beach. I said, "Oh, are you kidding me?" And they said, yeah, it's just a really, you know, it's just a really ordinary beach. And I said, but Galveston, oh, girl. And uh, they talked me out of it. I said, well, I kind of want it just to live in my head. I want to, I've just got this image of the <laughs> woman walking by the water, standing there looking out to see is she waiting there for me on the beach where we used to run. Well, I don't want, to, I don't want to see it. You know, I think the like, same thing would happen with Ipanema too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think so. So um, maybe, you know, heaven forbid that these guys will ever come to Lake Wendery. <laughs> <laughs> but they do have a kind of an emotional weight and, um, you know, they just uh, sort of the, the sound of them. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I do sort of love the words. And well, if you can cut away the associations, they're beautiful words. Yeah. Sure. And uh, again... <laughs> the w- I didn't mean that to again, sound insincere. No, no. But... <laughs> And again, because it's probably one of the things that might change is we stop looking at maps, you know, because like, everyone's just doing that, you know, like, um, I don't know, there's, there's something about looking at a map and seeing those places and seeing sometimes those places become places where people don't live, you know, they go from big places where people do live, like, you know, what happened to Wa- what happened to Wyalong? Why did West Wyalong yeah. become the place where people live and <laughs> what happened to Wyalong, you know, like, it, did anyone live Downtown in Wyalong or... <laughs> So, yeah. Uh, Mick, because you did that gorgeous little fragment, could you play Died in Ballarat? Sure. Sure. Okay. <laughs> 
past them plains Ooh, a saddened troop in the pouring rain Where the morning frost will freeze your bones All the way around Ballarat Where an angry sky and darkness roils And the anger of desertion boils Destitute in exile lane All the way around Ballarat You'd want to be a strong man You'd need to be a clown You'd need a constitution Made of iron Well, it's a slack tight rope we walk and cats It's a circus born in Moscow But died in Ballarat So we try and catch the ear Ooh, Of a nation born and bred on fear Constitution made of iron. Well, it's a slack tight rope we walk with the elephants and cats. It's a circus born in Moscow, but died in Ballarat. an echo of distant applause marooned on the wendery Constitution. 
constitution made of iron Well it's a slack tight rope we walk With elephants and cats It's a circus born in Moscow But died A circus born in Moscow That died So take me back to Moscow It died in Ballarat Um, now, I've got to let everybody take the opportunity to ask Mick some questions. So, um, if you want to put up the hand that's not the one that makes Mick play songs, yeah. um, please, by all means. Anybody out there want to kick uh, us off? Uh, there we go. I've always wondered what the story was behind Patrick Beckham. Um, uh, it's just sort of an idea, really. Um, uh, 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 when Stephen O'Prey joined the weddings, um, one of his kind of, you know, his mission statements was that he, he was sort of, he wasn't sure whether he should join the weddings because he, he'd sort of um, fallen out with the bad loves and, you know, he'd been like, he was, he'd formed that band and he was one of the songwriters initially and he felt that he'd been sort of elbowed out as a songwriter and he, and he when he said, so when he joined the weddings, he said he, he'd, he'd only join on the condition that he was involved in the songwriting, you know, and he wanted to write some. We said, well, look, you, you, you know, you're not going to be able to just write songs and bring them in. That's one thing for sure. But I kind of wanted to write with him, you know. So we, we wrote a few things together and, and I, I, you know, whenever it was, I was sitting in an Irish pub looking at it, uh, looking at the kind of uh, the decor and thinking, you know, where does this come from? Does it come from a factory? And I know at that time, I, I don't know if they still do it, but I know Guinness used to have these prefab pubs they used to send out around the world. Sorry? Shipping in containers. shipping containers, yeah. And they'd just send Abu Dhabi or wherever they wanted an Irish pub built and, and they'd just whack them up. And I just sort of thought they must have caused a, a dreadful kind of run on uh, Irish um, paraphernalia and bric-a-brac. <laughs> and so it was just an idea. But I, like I say, I was really looking uh, for subject matter that S Stephen would be across. So uh, we, we sort of... Um, sat down together to write it and you know we just never I think we wrote three or four together but he, he was kind of a it was a, probably wasn't a great time for to be s sitting down with Stephen O'Brien to do anything because <laughs> <laughs> to get him to sit still for half an hour was pretty difficult. Um, <laughs> yes, mate. Yeah, one there. Um, you were talking about places being a part of what he writes about what you write about Nick. Um, a, a lot of the concerts we go and see um, Oh yeah, yeah. It's totally. Um, what's the word for it? it, it it's, it's kind of. I see it as an honour. You know, I always see like, uh, yeah, that, there's that great Tom Petty live album, and uh, it's called Pack Up the Plantation, and he, he's 
I was doing breakdown in the crowd, so he goes, "Hey, you're going to put me out of a job." You know? <laughs> and uh, so, and it's it, it, look, it's a great thing. I, I mean, I'm not going to really dig it. And I know that even on, as recently as say the Christmas tour, we always look for the Oxford Hotel in Perth because that's a real singing crowd, and it's like, and we, yeah, generally speaking, if we get through to something like for a short time and the crowd always sing on the chorus but that I remember that day at the Oxford the crowd sang the entire song and we just kind of stood back and and the two new people in the band Jack uh, Tonks and Nick were just like, hell you know that was amazing and so yeah it, it is a really good feeling without a doubt to, to and we know the places that kind of sing more than others it's you know it's cool. So is that really a thing that some because I know that when you're in a crowd, often a musician will say, nobody rocks like, and they look at the back of their guitar and go, yeah. two's on. But <laughs> is it actually a fact that some pubs do react better than others? Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's just a tradition thing, but like we've, you know, um, and I think it's kind of been, it was, it was almost the thing that killed the weddings in the end, the, the, how strong the traditions were with the band about, you know, that we toured at Christmas and that, because it, the coins. And, it and it's sort of kind of, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's just repeated itself for me again. Yeah, you know, it's like that's, you know, that's the brand. You know, is kind mm. of doing these big tours at Christmas and, um, but yeah, and and the the places where we've been able to hang at certain pubs for a long time. So, particularly the Oxford in Perth, where we've just been playing for a long, long time. Um, yeah, they've really picked up. They're really comfortable with it, and it's kind of like it's a ritual, and we all kind of know it, and it's. Uh, it's not to be scoffed at because you know you could spend a long time playing it to no one. And as myself and Ben Salter last night, we were we were doing the run through for the legs, and uh, somehow, yeah, the, um, two people got through before the actual festival was open, and so all of a sudden these two people come and set up their folk chairs down down the front, <laughs> and and uh, we got through the thing, and and Ben said to me, "Crab was a bit light on." <laughs> <laughs> And, and I said, yeah, and everyone sort of chuckled and I said, well, Ben, you, you, you do these big tours overseas. And I said, and she said, you know that I do them too and that, that's kind of a reality that there are nights <laughs> when two people are here, you know, and he goes, yeah, I know, you know, and he said, like, go to Japan. And I said, oh, as, as if as if it's not hard enough that I, I'd still do that periodically that I kind of run a, a small pub in Melbourne where, you know, I'm quite a, often faced with that, um, situation where there are two people in the crowd for someone else and it, and it never changes it never gets easier and it, it, it never does anything but rip your heart out you know like so you'd the, be pretty good for a hug in those situations when the band's got two people yeah yeah i mean it's, 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 it, it, there's no way that it was ever what you signed on for you know yeah. so uh, so it was funny when ben said that last night because i was thinking exactly the same thing <laughs> that you know this could be, you know, like, oh, what, what, what did that do? No one come and, and then we went out to get something to eat and, and I was kind of aware that I was just kept looking at the crowd and I think, am I imagining it or is all the traffic going one way? And I'm going, no, that's just my kind of optimistic brain telling me that, you know. But it, I was right, actually. So, <laughs> so yeah, for that hour that we kind of sat down and went and got something to eat, the whole crowd just went like that and it was... It was full and it was great. So, um, yeah. so two turned into three and a half thousand. Or yeah, something. yeah, which, that uh, was extraordinary. Was a, it was a, a a good result. It certainly yeah. was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Over there. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. We'll do again. Yeah, I think we will do it again. It was it was in, it was sort of like. Um, 
it was like someone that's used to swimming 20 laps having to suddenly swim 80 you know it was like <laughs> it was really strenuous and it was really like you just go home and your know, brain was just set to explode just from as, as a memory test but uh, you know i guess there's a way of staving on staving off the early onset of alzheimer's it's probably <laughs> has value for me so i probably should do it again soon yeah it, uh, it was it was good fun yeah um, there's a question right up the back there. I can yeah. see a hand. Not enough. <laughs> you know, it's it, it. Look, that's one of the great things about this, the lag singing. It's like it just seems to, you know, we looked at that cast and and uh, I know the last time we, we we did this initial season um, of three shows that were commissioned for Dark Mofo in Tasmania and then couple of years later we got to do it at the Adelaide Cabaret Festival and it was probably two or three people different and it still worked so that was enough for us to say that it doesn't have to be these this group of people all the time but I just put we just put it out there we being myself and my brother and Carolyn Moore from the festival that we wanted to do it this year's Port Ferry and we got pretty much a hundred percent sign on from everyone in the band even to the point where Shelley Short could do it and it was just amazing because Shelley was touring with Nico and I said well Shelley's not gonna be able to do it you know um and then it said, oh, no, I'll be in town the week before and, yeah, I'm, I'll be at Port Ferry. Oh, yeah, but surely the dates will conflict. And it's just kind of like it just didn't. Yeah. So it's sort of, I mean, I think there's a bit of a serendipity in that, you know, a bit of, bit of a just pure luck. But also just the fact that everyone wanted to do it, um, you know, it is, it is really great. And it's, I think Adam Gibson, who's one of the guys who, who wrote one of the songs in it and he's on the, on the album, but he's not, uh, he's a Sydney poet you'd call him and he, he just said Mick when, when I first came out he said he said it's like your address book vomited you know he said, <laughs> he said, he said it's just it's just, just everyone you know and I said yeah yeah you're pretty much right um, I think we've got time for just perhaps one more question if anybody wants to finish off yes over there yeah hmm um, I think it was going back to Memphis because it, it was certainly the one song that, in my opinion, shouldn't have been... Like, it was only included as an afterthought on The Big Don't Argue because... And it's a really funny thing to think of, but The Big Don't Argue was right on the cusp of when vinyl was going to die and CDs took over, right? And so there was this... All of a sudden there was this thing that you could actually have more tracks on a CD and people were doing that and, and people were doing hidden tracks and for some reason... And, and I don't blame Warner's this at all, Warner's um, being the label at the time. But for some reason, we put it in the middle of the album. So, you know, so it wasn't enough to put it at the end as a hidden track where people mightn't find it. We wanted people to find it. We just didn't, but it's just not listed on the album cover. So therefore, the track listing is all buggered up on, the, on that album. But it's not a good, in, in our opinion, it's just, we never liked the version of it. We, we didn't get it right in the studio and it was, it was a really contentious recording you know we didn't there was just there's five things about it we just don't like about the original version we being me and wally um that we just felt could have been better and we just felt it was kind of just not true to the sentiment of the song i, I reckon and so i guess going back to memphis meant that we kind of really wanted to to get it get it right and also the fact that um the subject matter of it was probably a lot closer to us now as people well into their 50s then a, a bunch of 20-year-olds singing about a, an old woman whose kids have all left home. But all of a sudden, you know, we're kind of staring down the barrel of the same same thing, you know. So 
I, I guess for those two reasons, it, it was it seemed like a, a good exercise to have another stab at it. And I, and I like this version just a lot more. Yeah. Thanks, Mick. Um, everybody, we've got to wrap it up there, but um, you know that you need more Mick Thomas in your life. <laughs> and um, that is why Blarney Books have copies of Mick's songbook, These Are The Days. Um, it's a fantastic book with all sorts of explanations of these songs. Um, it's very tightly edited and um, you should grab yourself a copy. <laughs> this is Jock Sarong, ladies and gentlemen, who actually edited the book. So, uh, <laughs> and Jock has... Jock, and I might give Jock a bit of a plug here. He's got some fantastic novels that he's written. Oh, uh, the Rules of Backyard Cricket and the, On the Java Ridge being his new one, which is really, really worth reading so thank you mate um you can also see mick today launching the album uh stage two four fifteen that's right um and then please 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 tomorrow two forty five stage three vandemonian lags are doing an encore performance and it is completely stunning um monday at 11 a.m roving commission yep, yep, yep on stage one so there's heaps more opportunities to listen to mick and um hope you'll join with me in thanking him thank you